there is value in reporting. There is value in opinion. Um, there's analysis, which is kind of a hoity-toity word for opinion uh, presented in a responsible way. And the key thing is that it's always clear which is which. I'm Eric Schwartzman, author of The Digital Pivot, and this is the Earned Media Podcast. Harry McCracken is technology editor at Fast Company, an award-winning journalist, and a hardcore geek. He's been a geek since before it was cool to be a geek, so he's cool now but he wasn't always. Back in the day, he owned an Atari 400 computer. I still have it. It's, it's uh, I, a friend of mine recently fixed it for me and it's running again. I, I had a friend in college who had an Atari 400. He too was a hardcore geek, although he's now a computer animator at Disney and he gets into Disneyland for free. And now you're in charge of tech coverage at Fast Company. So I guess geekdom worked out well for you guys. It's been an interesting path, but yes, totally. Today in three acts, we're going to talk about how to harness the good and get rid of the bad parts of social media, the recipe for restoring trust in journalism, and how to get featured by Fast Company with technology editor Harry McCracken. Stay with us. Act one, to regulate or not to regulate technological innovation? That is the question. Ever since the Cambridge Analytica psychographic profiling scandal, Congress has yet to strike down any of the existing laws that allow tech companies to be held harmless for the skullduggery users commit on their platforms. Yet Google, Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn sell psychographically targeted advertisements daily. What Cambridge Analytica did is what big tech does every day. It's how they make money. Our guest, Harry McCracken, is technology editor at Fast Company, a news media outlet dedicated to inspiring readers to think beyond traditional boundaries and create the future of business. Now, Harry, I know you're not a lawyer, but just this week, NPR reported that the Supreme Court dismissed a lower court ruling that former President Trump violated First Amendment rights of his critics when he blocked them on Twitter. If public officials block people who disagree with them from accessing their social media accounts, do you think that's a violation of their First, rights amend First Amendment rights? Well, I have to say on the list of uh, things that bother me about what politicians do and what uh, social media platforms enable that ranks really low, um, partially because you know, if you're not logged into Twitter, you, can, you could have read Donald Trump's stuff, whether or not he blocked you. Um, it's a really interesting question though. I mean, he was unique among all politicians and the degree to which Twitter was his platform and he made announcements on Twitter. And uh, I can certainly see why people would have an issue with not being able to read it. But uh, even so that I never found that super bothersome compared to some of the other issues going on. And as the Supreme Court pointed out, it became moot when Twitter kicked him off. Now on the flip side, 
Justice Clarence Thomas took aim at Section 230 of the Communications Decency Law, which effectively shields social networks from being liable for what users say on their platforms by saying social networks have really become more like common carriers, which is the language used to describe phone companies. Thomas is suggesting that social networks should be treated more like phone companies and regulated accordingly. What are your thoughts on this? Well, uh, I mean, the, the first thing that came to mind is that um, there is something that's a lot like a phone company on the internet, but it's, it's not a social networking platform. It's something like WhatsApp, which is extremely comparable to uh, a phone company. And um, generally speaking, um, uh, things like WhatsApp and uh, FaceTime and so forth are, are not kicking people off of them. It's, it's these public platforms that are having the issues and uh, those are not exactly comparable to something like a phone network. Um, whether or not the social media platforms like to admit it, um, what they do is much more comparable to traditional publications such as magazines and newspapers. And um, generally speaking, nobody has a right to be in a newspaper or in a magazine. So, so your, your sense is the complexity of the platform. If the platform does more than just enable you to have a conversation, then it doesn't fit in the common carrier uh, uh, bucket. I mean, it's not, it, they're certainly not exactly comparable. Um, one of the interesting things about uh, all of this is basically uh, a very high percentage of the people involved in legislation from Supreme Court justices to senators, to President Biden, uh, all agree on one thing, which is that the kind of the current situation is broken. Uh, the social networking platforms have not done an adequate job of solving their problems for themselves. Um, there's a surprising amount of consensus that Section 230 is broken. Um, Donald Trump was opposed to it. Um, Joe Biden also says he's not a fan of it. So uh, while I don't think it's at all a given that Section 230 will go away, it seems like it, like it's a pretty fair bet that it's going to um, evolve in the years to come. And one way, one way or another law is coming. Meanwhile, the Electronic Freedom Foundation is a huge proponent of Section 230, um, you know, saying that, you know, you, you can't censor really anybody anytime. You have to leave it all open. But, you know, does the fact that social networks use algorithms to surface the most engaging content on their networks make them effectively more like publishers? Well, they've always done that. And just really in the last maybe year or so, particularly, they've also acted a lot more like publishers in terms of, of cracking down on, on stuff they don't like, um, which can be anything from calls to violence to misinformation, such as about vaccines. Um, in the old days, they were, they were much more likely to leave misinformation up and uh, take the stance essentially that um, the good stuff would um, smother the bad, or rather than deleting misinformation, they would simply uh, tell the algorithm to, to demote it in terms of promotion. And, um, you know, they do much more often right now, they'll, they'll just take stuff off. I'd say after the, the events in January at the Capitol, they're far more cautious about, about things that look like they might be calls for violence. And the, the more that these platforms just get rid of stuff, the more they do look like publishers. Now, um, 
you know, n- neither Facebook uh, nor Twitter deplatformed Trump until uh, th- until the Democrats, uh, you know, got got the House or uh, the Senate rather. Um, do you think that was coincidental? Interesting question. Um, I mean, he, uh, and it was he, on that day yeah. that the Georgia senators won that he was deplatformed. Right. Well, and, and you know, he was also a lame duck. Um, I think really, uh, who would want to be uh, be accused of using technology to enable the you know calls to violence and the organization of uh, of people who are uh, rushing into um, the Capitol and uh, committing actual acts of violence? I think I think part of it, at least, is they got really scared by the idea that, that they would be blamed for some awful stuff and, and not just the awful stuff that happened on that day, but, but stuff that you know could come. You wrote about the Federal Trade Commission's lawsuit asserting that Facebook is an illegal monopoly um, and seeking the forced divestiture of Instagram and WhatsApp. If successful, the suit would undo the acquisitions that played pivotal roles in Facebook's dominance of social media and messaging over the past decade. What's the latest development in this suit? Well, it's there hasn't been a lot of news lately. Um, it's still bubbling out there. Um, people are still accusing Facebook of essentially trying to um, insulate itself from being broken up by weaving everything together even more closely. Um, I did a big story ab- about the fact that they're doing things like like letting people on Instagram message people on Facebook and vice versa. There's now kind of one set of, of account settings for multiple apps. Um, Facebook says, I'd say not without reason, that um, a lot of the integration they did that would make them hard to break up is stuff they did years ago, back when they, they put Instagram and uh, WhatsApp on Facebook servers. Um, but they haven't really made any new friends by, by trying to weave everything together even more tightly at the same time that people are calling for, for it all to be broken up. If Facebook were broken up, would it solve anything? My sense is that it might help a little bit, but on some fronts, but it would not change stuff radically. Um, I mean, with or without WhatsApp and Instagram, Facebook is still going to be a, a behemoth. Uh, those other two things are also going to be behemoths. Um, I'd love to see a world in which very small social media companies have a chance at, at becoming big enough to scare uh, the Facebooks of the world. Um, that happened fairly often back in the days when Instagram was getting started and Snapchat was new. Um, TikTok is sort of the most recent thing that uh, it all feels like it's something that Facebook had to worry about, and you have seen it introduce TikTok type features. Um, but in general, yeah, I'm, I'm more concerned that um, even if you have several enormous companies, it, it's very hard for new innovative stuff to gain traction. If, um, if Congress were to try and regulate social media, um, do you think they have the intellect and ability to do so without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Certainly, I'm always instinctively worried about uh, government getting its hands in technology and kind of the more specific the remedies they have and the more that they are mandating them, um, the more scared I am. Um, There certainly are some smart folks in Washington that we talk to quite a bit. Um, 
Senator Ron Wyden comes to mind as somebody who knows what he's talking about and uh, his take on stuff I take seriously. Um, and uh, we'll see. I mean, we kind of went from a, a long period in which um, they were not inclined to do anything. And, um, you know, you saw very few antitrust cases of, of any type. Um, the last uh, big ones that impacted the technology world were AT&T getting broken up in the early 80s. And then in the 90s, Microsoft coming close to being broken up, but ultimately escaping that. And so what happens with Facebook will be really interesting to watch. It may take many years. Um, I did a little bit of research into um, the phone company being broken up. And there was like 70 years of discussion of that and some, some smaller antitrust cases before it actually happened. So uh, it's not necessarily 2021 that is the year that this will all become clear. It might be 2025 before we really know what's gonna happen. Restoring Truth in Journalism, Surveillance Capitalism, and YouTube Product Development with Fast Company Technology Editor Harry McCracken. When we return, stay with us. Act Two, Restoring Truth in Journalism. I celebrated social media as the ultimate democratizer of information. I bought into James Surowiecki's Wisdom of the Crowds ideal which argued that the collective wisdom of the people on the internet would serve as the ultimate purveyor of truth. But as Shoshana Zuboff observed in her book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, the social networks agreed to an open data policy with the US intelligence community and allowed elected officials to lie with impunity, resulting in the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. Sometimes we put ourselves first. Sometimes we put our principles first. Harry, in 2007, you quit your job over an ethical issue that became quite public. If you would, walk us through the series of events that transpired from beginning to end. Sure, well, um, at that time, I was the editor-in-chief of PC World Magazine, which um, back then was the largest technology magazine in terms of circulation. And, um, you know, like other technology magazines back then, um, the web, we knew the web was really important to our future and we were generating a lot of content for it specifically. And we were working on two stories, one of which was 10 things we love about Apple and another of which was 10 things we hate about Apple. And uh, something happened kind of by accident that uh, would send a shutter through any editors uh, body, which is, um, while I was traveling, the story about 10 things we hate about Apple um, got into the hands of our, our CEO, who, who uh, was quite new to the job back then. And it was the, the unedited version of the story. Uh, obviously, any writer or editor knows that often what um, gets printed or published online is quite different from the first draft. And um, our CEO was really alarmed by the story. I'd, I'd say that, um, in fact, I'm, I know that he was over alarmed, but he was very sensitive to Apple's concerns, uh, particularly given that um, uh, our parent company, IDG, also owned Macworld Magazine and, and put on Macworld Expo, which at the time was something that Apple was involved in. And that was a, a very critical relationship. And so the CEO who was my boss basically told me we're not gonna publish this story. 
And um, I pointed out that I agreed with some of his concerns and um, what he looked at had not been edited. And um, he said he understood that, but he was drawing a, a line in the sand. And so I drew my own line in the sand and resigned basically based on the stance that um, for editorial content, um, you know, uh, the bottom line should come with, with the editor in chief rather than the CEO. And I, I had tried to find compromise and failed. And um, so I resigned and uh, that became public. Uh, this was 2007. So this was sort of before the era in which stuff blew up on Twitter. Um, but a number of publications wrote about me doing this. And um, I'd say generally speaking, uh, when people learned about it, they took, they took my side. Uh, and so um, it was really disruptive to the business. And um, I, I think about a week went by and uh, it kind of became clear to me that um, uh, PC World's reputation stood a real chance of becoming really damaged if this went on. And I um, talked to the powers that be at our headquarters and um, the CEO ultimately went back to his old job, which, which was a corporate job. Um, and I came back as editor-in-chief and stayed for another year after that. For those who are listening to this, who are from outside the business of journalism, break it down for us and explain why should the editor-in-chief make editorial decisions rather than the CEO? Basically because the CEO um, is responsible, not specifically for editorial, but for the entire business. And with most media businesses, the revenue largely comes from the industry you cover, which has always been a, a basic situation rife with conflicts of interest. Um, because if your goal is to make advertisers happy, you're probably gonna very quickly lose whatever reputation you have with readers. And so you really have to tough it out sometimes and do things that are going to make advertisers unhappy in some cases. They might pull advertising, you might, you might damage relationships. I should say that um, one reason why I came back was because the situation was really quite a bit of an aberration. There, there had been many instances in which um, companies we covered were mad at us and I'd always felt like I had the back of, of the company and, and there lots of cases where people stopped advertising. And it generally, it turns out that if you have a media platform that, uh, that readers prize and find credible, um, advertisers are gonna to wanna to be on that. And uh, they, may, they may throw a snit, they may pull out, but they generally co come back in the long run. Um, and uh, PC World really knew that, which is why this, this situation was so unusual. And uh, to get around to answering your question, um, I'd say, Good CEOs understand all of this, and they 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 ultimately let the editor in chief make their own calls, and um, and if they don't do that, you very quickly get into a situation where, where they do what's expedient from a business standpoint, even if long term it, it couldn't really damage the business in terms of its reputation. Did you have um, an opinion section? Um. We didn't have an opinion section. Uh, we certainly did stuff that was opinion-based, such, such as these two stories. Uh, 
And I should mention all along, we also plan to do this story about stuff we loved about Apple. So it was, it was never about bashing Apple or, um, but uh, yeah, like everybody else, we, we had stuff that was very methodical. We, we did reviews that were lab tested and stuff that was a little bit more based on opinion. So, so why is it today that it's unclear uh, what's opinion and what's news? It seemed like that used to be clearer, but that disclosure doesn't seem to be transparent anymore, particularly in uh, cable news and electronic media, where the news is presented as though it's news from a news desk, but in fact, it's opinion. Uh, and I wonder if you have any thoughts on that and if that has any impact on uh, people's trust in news. That's certainly something we, we think a lot about. I mean, in the old days, um, you know, in the, your classic newspaper, you had news reporting, which at least ideally was, was pretty much devoid of opinion. Although of course, human beings being humans, um, there's always subjectivity to it. And you had the, the opinion isolated on the op-ed pieces, um, on the web, I'd, I'd say it's always been a little bit different given that the, the web has never been a, as section-based as print publishing. Um, so you were always mixing stuff up more than you did in the past. Um, I mean, my general, uh, and you know, you mentioned cable news, uh, which basically in a lot of cases is sort of news during the day and opinion at night. And the, the opinion is what gets the ratings, which is kind of depressing. I'd say my general philosophy is that um, there is value in reporting. There is value in opinion. Um, there's analysis, which is kind of a hoity-toity word for opinion uh, presented in a responsible way. And the key thing is that it's always clear which is which. Um, you should not let your opinion uh, push your reporting in a particular direction or, or lead you only to pick data points that, that support your own personal opinion. Um, I'd say there's, we've published some opinion, which is really valuable. And as long as it's clear that that's what it is, that's fine. Um, but um, even without labeling it, it should be pretty obvious. We, we sometimes do label opinion. We, we have a, a little eyebrow label we have called POV, which will put it on opinion pieces. But I'd say when all is said and done, readers probably aren't looking at those little labels. And, and so the, the critical thing is that if you're publishing opinion, it should be obvious that that's what it is. And when you're publishing reporting, um, even in a story which is largely reported, you might have some opinion, but it should be clear that that's what it is. And you should be willing to have your reporting take, to, take you to places that go way beyond the opinion you thought you had about something. And of course, you should, of course, you should also talk to people who don't share your opinion, which is what, why in this Facebook story, I, uh, I talked to everybody from people who worked at Facebook to people like Shoshana who, who believe that it should be broken up. The latest Edelman Trust Barometer says trust in social media as a source of news and information is at an all-time low. People don't know who to trust. All sources are viewed with suspicion. So bad information is not only contaminating the information ecosystem, it's also starting to make people doubt good information. And I wonder, how are you dealing with this at Fast Company? And what do you think it means for the future of journalism? Yeah, I'd say that broadly speaking, um, the reputation of the media is in tatters, not that I at least ever remember a time, uh, at least since Walter Cronkite retired, when you could say there were all that many examples of, of anybody 
who really had uh, universal trust and embedding. There were even people who didn't trust Walter Cronkite. Um, although I'd say that even though there's sort of this broad distrust, um, it's still really possible to build a media brand that people trust. And uh, one of the reasons that Fast Company is, is weathering this era pretty well is that, that we have this quorum of people who have really bonded with us on an emotional level in terms of what our mission is and do trust us. And, and I think you will find other kind of sp specific examples of brands that are trusted. And um, you earn that trust by, uh, first of all, as I said, uh, being clear on, on what's reporting, what's opinion, um, not compromising your values um, from a business standpoint, um, identifying an audience who cares about the same things you do and channeling what those people think and what, what they want out of you and doing your best to fulfill it, which is, is certainly our mantra. The economics of surveillance capitalism turned Facebook into an advertising juggernaut and a killing field for truth. Then an amoral Mr. Trump became president demanding the right to lie at scale. Destructive economics merged with political appeasement and everything became infinitely worse, wrote Shoshana Zuboff, professor emeritus at the Harvard School of Business in an essay published by the New York Times. I wonder how has this trickled down to impact an outlet like Fast Company? Has it changed the degree of trust people have for technology business news as well? There have always been cynics out there and skeptics, and uh, we certainly hear from them. Um, I'd say one key way in which Fast Company has evolved over the last probably four or five years is um, you know, we've been around for 25 years and we've always been an optimistic brand. Uh, we've always believed that business can be a force for good. Um, but, uh, and we've always told stories about, about it being a force for good and inspiring people. Uh, but more recently, it's, it's become painfully obvious that um, a lot of the stuff that people care about, about technology is not about those upbeat stories. It's about technology companies either not solving problems or creating them. And uh, as a brand, uh, we, could, we could not have anybody feel like we had blinders on. And um, so, there's still certainly lots of upbeat stuff in Fast Company about technology making the world a better place because those stories do exist. But but if you audited everything we do, you would find that we're we're, we're probably a lot more critical than we once were. Uh, we write a lot about the problems that that Facebook and Amazon and uh, other companies have. Um, we try to do so in an unblinkered way, and I think that's probably the single most important thing you you can do to continue to have credibility among your readers. Uh, you recently interviewed YouTube's product chief, Neil Mohan. Um, how has the pandemic changed their service and what are their plans for the rest of 2021? Uh, well, an awful lot of the companies we cover in a way have benefited from the pandemic because um, the more you're stuck at home or working from home uh, and the less you're in the outside world, um, the more you depend on, on work tools such as Zoom and the more likely you are to entertain yourself by watching something like YouTube. And uh, in that piece I wrote, I, I wrote about the fact that um, 
YouTube is really not one thing anymore. They really, they really have this whole portfolio of stuff. They, there's YouTube in its classic form. Um, there's YouTube TV, which co uh, competes directly with cable TV. Um, they have stuff tailored for gamers. They have YouTube kids. Uh, and so Neil Mohan really has all, all these things he has to think about. Um, and they also have two core constituencies, which are the people watching the stuff and the people making the stuff. And uh, if you're a watcher, you don't think that much about, about this, but a very large percentage of uh, YouTube's intellectual capacity is devoted into helping people make stuff that, that's likely to be popular. Um, so they think a lot about monetization um, over the long term. Of, of course, the, the main thing that YouTube has done to help people have an incentive to make content is they've uh, shared advertising revenue with them, uh, which works well if, if you're really huge on YouTube. But lately they've done things um, to make it easier for um, people watching content and fans to share, to you know, basically just give money to their favorite creators, which is particularly helpful for the people whose uh, uh, viewerships are not as enormous. Um, they're continuing to throw AI at stuff such as um, breaking content up into chapters. Um, they recently introduced something that, that lets content creators create chapters on their own. But if people don't do that, uh, YouTube will try to, to break it up anyhow to make it a little easier to browse through longer videos. Um, like all the other platforms, YouTube has devoted a lot of uh, energy lately to figuring out how to manage uh, bad stuff. And while I'd say they've been a little bit less aggressive than, than Twitter, for instance, in the actions they've, they've taken, um, they have cracked down a lot more than they once did uh, in the old days. Uh, the primary they, tools they used to crack down on uh, uh, dangerous content was they would demonetize it. So nobody had an incentive to do it to make money and they would, they would uh, demote it via the algorithm. And in some cases like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, um, they're just getting rid of stuff if it's too dangerous. Yeah, um, you know, uh, they have been at the center of, uh, you know, Kevin Roos's allegations of, you know, being a, uh, um, a bubble filter that prioritizes more of the same. And obviously yes. that means not just more cat videos, but also, you know, more conspiracy theory videos. And um, that obviously has a natural polarizing effect on, you know, audiences, um, uh, particularly politically. Uh, I, did you have a chance to talk about any of that with Neil uh, and um, how are they grappling with that reality? Uh, I talked with them a little bit. I mean, they have sort of these core tenets they have on how to deal with this, which are pretty straightforward um, in terms of having things like rules and enforcing them and so forth. I, I'd say um, it's become really obvious that one of the big challenges that all of these platforms have is that um, A, it's very hard to come up with rules that encompass all the problems you might find. Uh, and even if you have those rules, it's really hard to enforce them in a consistent way. And there, there are you know, just an endless number of examples of uh, these companies in, enforcing the same rule differently against different people, uh, particularly when uh, that enforcing is being done by algorithms where 
you know, even the people who create algorithms don't, don't truly understand why AI makes some of the decisions it does. And B, even if, if you bring in human beings to enforce those rules, they are typically not terribly well-paid uh, human beings who may not even be working for your company. They, they may be working for some outsourcing agency and uh, it's just terribly hard to, um, to get them to police content all in the same way. So um, say, saying we have rules and enforcing them is not a terribly satisfying response to it. And uh, we have seen YouTube like everybody else become a little bit um, more serious about tamping down on stuff, but it's, it's an ongoing battle. Um, uh, Shoshana Zuboff argues in her book that the, the only real answer is to uh, limit the acquisition of data about our hopes, fears, dreams, and preferences. Um, you know, that if you try to moderate or uh, fact check in the downstream, you're, you're, you're in the wrong place. You need to deal with it at the source. Um, and that is data collection. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's basically true. Uh, you can certainly talk a lot about uh, how absolute you are in, in limiting uh, platforms' ability to do that. But um, once they have the data, it is really hard through legislation to control what they do with it. Uh, you're very reliant on them making their own decisions about what they do with data. Uh, we are seeing, um, in some cases, companies um, taking some steps to, to limit uh, what they do with data. Um, Apple is sort of the one company that, um, as both a, a moral and marketing thing, has limited what they do with your data. Um, but we've seen Google take some steps to um, not target you based so completely on what it knows about you as it did in the past. Um, Facebook, um, uh, another thing I wrote about in this story is that Facebook has this vision that um, the future is a little bit less about the, the public square uh, and a little bit more about private conversations that they might be less likely to monitor. So they also see kind of their future as being a, a little bit less about, about targeting you. Um, but still that, that's Facebook making these decisions and uh, it seems a certainty at this point that government will step in on, on some of these fronts. And um, it, that may well involve uh, limiting, you know, through law, limiting some of the data these companies can collect. Do you think um, uh, TikTok could pose at any point a formidable threat to uh, YouTube? I mean, I think it already is in terms of mind space. Uh, and you've seen YouTube ro roll out um, features that are kind of similar to TikTok. Uh, it's uh, a challenge them for them though, given that TikTok is this one compelling thing that certainly a lot of the people who used to kill time in YouTube I find tremendously appealing and uh, with, with YouTube and, uh, and with Instagram, which also has its TikTok clone it's, it's part of a larger package. And generally speaking, technology companies, I'd say are at their best where they, when they do one thing really well. And, and, and TikTok came up with, with one thing that's kind of transfixing and is difficult to copy. We're talking to Harry McCracken. He is the technology editor at Fast Company. And when we come back, we're gonna talk about how he decides what to cover. Stay with us. Act three the life of a technology editor. What's it like to make decisions 
that can make or break technology companies? How do news and feature coverage decisions get made? What sort of key performance indicators are publishers looking at? And what are the elements of the perfect fast company story? Harry, obviously tech news is a very competitive space. Are there any sort of defining characteristics that differentiate Fast Company from its competitors? There are a bunch of them. And uh, you mentioned tech news. I'd say one key thing is that um, if, uh, say if a, a tech company has news and has possibly pre-briefed a bunch of outlets about it and 20 sites do largely similar stories based on this news and, and Fast Company is one of them, um, odds are that story is not gonna do terribly well for us. Uh, it's hard to beat somebody like TechCrunch or The Verge at doing that sort of stuff. And um, so we do have a news section, but, but if you look at that, you'll, you'll discover that most of the stories are like, like maybe three or four or, par or five paragraphs long and uh, are really trying to be quick hits uh, in a very skimmable format rather than being the definitive news story. And the more we keep that under control, um, the more freedom we have to invest more time in, in the stories that really define Fast Company, which typically are not about the breaking news of any given day. Um, they're much more about, about the big stories um, that go on for months or years. Uh, we love behind the scenes stories. Uh, we love having the opportunity to um, follow, you know, an innovation in progress over days or weeks or months and, and tell the story that other outlets often don't have the luxury of telling because they're much more news driven. Um, so, so if Fast Company was a person, how would you define his or her personality? Uh, well, I, another way of answering that is to think about the reader we have in mind and uh, we write for somebody uh, a, who could be in a company of any size. Um, we have everybody from uh, solo entrepreneurs to people who work for the world's largest global companies. Um, what they do for a living can be almost anything. Uh, we, you know, uh, sometimes people, uh, companies pitch me on writing about, say, the advertising industry. And while we will write about advertising, if it, if it feels like the story is only of interest, if you are in advertising, it's, it's not right for us because our, our readers can do almost anything. Um, but a few things do unify them. I, I'd say, A, they're curious people. They, they actually do like to, be to read about advertising uh, if it's in the right context and entertainment and manufacturing and, and privacy and almost anything. Um, they do like to be inspired. Um, I mentioned that, uh, you know, we do have to have uh, to understand that there's a lot of uh, negativity out there and problems caused by technology. And, and, and we do cover that and that's valuable. Um, but people do like those stories of, of somebody who made the world a better place through business or overcame a challenge or solved a problem. Um, that's valuable to them. Um, these are basically our people who are trying to be forces uh, for good through what they do for a living. Um, they like being successful. Um, they like being productive. Um, and so they like learning stuff through our publication that, that helps them in that way. Uh, of, of all the news beats or, you know, topical categories that you cover at Fast Company, 
which ones are the most competitive and which ones seem to be like the toughest to fill? Well, we've been going through this weird period over the past year. Um, I mean, almost exactly a year ago, um, we pretty much woke up and it became clear to us that we had to devote essentially virtually 100% of our reporting resources to COVID-19 and the pandemic. And, uh, you know, almost literally that's all we did for a while. Uh, and then even once we uh, started to weave other stuff back into our reporting, it tended to be either pandemic adjacent or it was about, about uh, politics and uh, the presidential campaign and misinformation. And so we went through a year where the classic meat and potatoes technology stories we did and, and stuff like, uh, like the new iPad uh, or the new iPhone or new Google features really um, took the back seat. And uh, we're kind of at a point now where we are bringing some, some more of the classic stuff back in, but it's still competing with these other big stories, which, which, which we're not covering because we chose to so much as because there was no question we had to. And uh, even some of these classic stories, um, there's a pandemic element to them at one point or another. Like, like if you talk to a YouTube today, uh, you're probably gonna talk to them partially about how the pandemic has affected what they do. And um, I'm talking to another large company tomorrow, which um, I'm not gonna tell you who they are because the story won't show up for a while. But um, my first question to them will be, uh, how, does, how has the pandemic affected your business? And do you expect the changes to be permanent or not? And uh, one basic thing about the pandemic was all of a sudden we were competing not only with the classic publications you, you might think of when you think about Fast Company as competition, uh, but the biggest news outlets in the world and um, part of how we succeeded. And I think we did, we did succeed in doing useful stuff was um, we did not try to do the story that um, a big newspaper would do about, about some of the stuff. It, it still came back to um, the pandemic and pandemic adjacent stuff filtered through Fast Company's sensibility and, and what we know about what our readers cared about. I want to talk more about a day in the life of a journalist, but just as an aside, um, do you have a sense from a technology standpoint of what sort of uh, changes will be enduring after we come out of this pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like anybody who's positive about some of this stuff is probably wrong and we'll all be surprised. Um, I mean, I, I think it is pretty obvious that um, we've all discovered that there are a lot of technology tools such as video conferencing uh, that make it really easy to work from everywhere, from any, anywhere and everywhere, which I sort of knew already because um, Fast Company is headquartered in New York and most of my colleagues have been there, but uh, I've been based in San Francisco and have been you know, working out of coffee shops half the time and nobody has noticed because I've been able to use these tools. But um, I think you will see, um, uh, I mean, one interesting thing to me is, uh, and I don't think we have an answer yet, is to, the degree to which people will go flood back into the, these large offices. Um, I think some people will go back, um, but you've also seen uh, big tech, tech companies realize that economically uh, it costs a lot to have a big, beautiful office. And you've seen companies such as Dropbox, which had one of the nicest offices I've ever seen kind of announce that they won't do that anymore. And instead of telling people to come in, they'll, they'll have kind of smaller studios, which people will only use when they need to collaborate in person. So um, there's, this, there's this continual 
continuum from everybody in the office all the time to nobody ever in the office. And I, I'm not sure where we'll land, but it's clearly going to be somewhere closer to the midpoint than it would have been if this hadn't happened. Yeah, I mean, clearly tech is, uh, you know, moving in that direction. I have a good friend who works at one of the studios in Hollywood and uh, her boss is saying she wants everyone back. You know, she wants everyone back in the office. And I wonder, out, do you have a sense outside the tech bubble uh, whether or not uh, remote working will catch on? Uh, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I'd, I'd say in the past, um, tech savvy companies were um, really good at using Zoom and Slack and so forth. And uh, companies not so clearly defined by technology in a lot of cases were less so. And so um, in a way, this last year was a time when, when almost every company became a tech company in terms of having no choice but to use these tools. Uh, I do think a lot of managers are inherently suspicious of people they can't see. And in some cases, hopefully, having spent a year not being able to see their colleagues, they came away from it more trustful. But I don't think that will be the case in, in all instances. And uh, some, some of the old... Uh, traits that the managers have, you'll, you'll see come back into play. Okay, back to editorial. Uh, beyond sort of the mandatory big tech stories that you have to cover, um, and of course, you know, the pandemic stuff that you had to cover, what sort of less obvious types of developments do you personally like to cover? Um, I mean, I'd say that uh, for fast company tech in general, and for me in particular, um, first of all, kind of the, the one thing that has to be there is an interesting product or service that we feel will resonate with our readers. Um, like nothing else matters unless you're writing about um, something, you know, unless the company is doing something we think people care about. Um, it's kind of a no-go. But just having that interesting product or service is not enough because there are going to be a lot of other outlets writing about it. So the things that make um, it extra compelling for us are we like stuff that involve interesting people. Um, in some cases, that interesting person is, is like a household name or a familiar person in the industry or somebody who's had past successes. Um, those all can be great hooks. But particularly lately, I'd say we're at least as interested in talking to people who are not well-known and people a few levels down on the food chain. Um, we've always been a publication that did not want to uh, be dominated basically by white guys with familiar faces. So, so we've always cared about diversity, um, but obviously everybody cares about that right now more than ever. And, and one of the ways to make sure that you are reflecting some of that richness is to cover the people who have, who have not traditionally been spokespeople and who may not be very at the very top of the company. So, so we, we like finding interesting people who have not been interviewed a million times before. Uh, as I mentioned, we love behind the scenes stories. Um, it's great when uh, we have more than a week or so to put together a story. Uh, we love digging into things and uh, getting the opportunity to spend time with people. Um, one of the things I, I really missed over the past year is in normal times, um, I work out of a WeWork in San Francisco and you know, get if all I did was cover companies I could walk to, that would be a fabulous job. And in, in some cases, my reporting involves walking to a company over a few weeks or a few months and following a tale in person, which has not been possible. Um, but I, I'm looking forward to that becoming an option again. And that's often some of the most satisfying reporting we do. Um, 
explain for us, if you would, uh, the editorial hierarchy of Fast Company. Sure. Um, but one of the things that makes uh, my job rewarding is that um, as technology editor, I feel like I have a lot of power and freedom to um, figure out what I think readers want and make it happen rather than purely uh, doing the bidding of our hires up, uh, such as our editor-in-chief, Stephanie Mehta. So um, we have, um, you know, we have an editor-in-chief. Uh, we have uh, Ben Landy, who's my boss, who has overall responsibility for our digital presence. But then we have me and uh, we have folks um, who are at my level who edit sections such as our impact section and co-design. And uh, while none of those are like entirely standalone editorial brands, um, we really are almost in some ways kind of more of, of like a confederation of smart people. And we, we like giving people the opportunity to pursue their passions. Um, sometimes when people ask what, what my beats are or what the beats are of other people in our, our tech section, it's hard to answer that because it's not driven by ordering people to cover specific things so much as people having passions and attempting to understand the passions our readers have and finding the stories that, that sit at that intersection. And then do you have a staff of reporters? Yes, uh, I work with folks who are on staff who cover tech full-time. Uh, I have a, a deputy tech editor, Catherine Schwab, uh, who like me, uh, both of us, write more than the typical editor does as, as well as editing other folks. Uh, we have freelancers we've worked with for years who are core to what we do. Um, we're always looking for new freelancers and, and people who have expertise and perspectives that, that we don't already have. Um, so it, it's a relatively small team of full-timers and a larger team when, when you look at everybody who we work with. Is there still a print publication? There is. Uh, it's, uh, and it, it does not come out as often as it once did. Um, it comes out six times a year, which in a way is almost liberating because um, I used to work at Time Magazine, which was a weekly, and it's really hard for a weekly print publication to compete with the internet. I, I'd say at Time, we could only do that if things happened on, on certain days of the week. And uh, if they happened on a day of the week where we couldn't get it into print for a week, we would just skip it. And the fact that Fast Company in print only comes out six times a year means it's not news driven at all. And it's trying to cover things that have kind of more lasting value. And uh, it's still really important. I I'd say there are still people we wanna write about who are excited about seeing themselves in a print publication or um, having the opportunity to tell their story in that, that venue. And uh, it's still a beautifully produced thing on nice paper with great photography and readers still care about it a lot. Um, but if it was the only thing we, we were doing, we'd be in trouble. So we do print, we do the web. Uh, we Once the pandemic lets up, we'll go back to doing in-person events. Uh, we've spent the last year doing virtual events instead of, of in-person ones, which it turned out worked out so well. I'm, I'm sure we'll continue to do those. Um, so it's, it's not a brand about print it's, or even just a brand about a website. It's, it's a, a brand that, that reaches readers through all kinds of venues. And then I noticed you have uh, a portfolio of podcasts. Mm -hmm. Podcasts I should have mentioned, video I should have mentioned. The, those are both critical to what we do as well. And, um, and those also are um, run with a fair amount of independence to, to kind of 
do stuff in the way that feels right um, according to the people who create the, those forms of content. So, so you're not um, in, involved with those. You're not editing that content. No, we, we have podcast producers and video producers, and you will you will often see uh, some of the people who, who write for Fast Company doing podcasts and video. Um, but we're still tailoring those forms of media um, to the way we think they should be run, rather than than them being overly dependent on on uh, what we do on the website or in print. As a personal project, you maintain a website about a long lost forgotten animated character called Scrappy, which you acknowledge you like <laughs> because of its 1930s feel. And you've recently written about Apple II knockoffs, the death of fries, software legend Ray Ozzy. Is it fair to say you're attracted to nostalgic tech stories? Uh, we love history. I'd say particularly at uh, for Fast Company, nostalgia alone is not an, enough. We're still ultimately about innovation. And so at least the more ambitious historical stories I do, I, I try to find the innovation lesson rather than it purely being about, you know, the Game Boy was cool 30 years ago. Um, in my personal life, I don't have to worry at all about what Fast Company readers care about. And so I can do something like, like having this, this website about Scrappy. I, I have always been an animation fan. And um, I run this website basically because there was almost no information about Scrappy uh, anywhere. He's, he's not like Mickey Mouse or Betty Boop who people remember. And it's been a kind of a rewarding experience to be able to create the definitive website on something, I can say pretty confidently, I have the definitive Scrappy website. And if people try to research Scrappy, they very quickly come to me. And so I quite often hear from that people with questions, or interesting discoveries. And it's very fun to be able to do something self-indulgent and personal that, that will never make me a dime. But it does turn out that other people find it fun as well. Well, um, Harry McCracken, Fast Company Technology Editor, it has been fun talking to you. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Eric. This has just been great. For more on how you can earn influence through Earn Media, get the Digital Pivot audiobook at digitalpivotbook.com.